welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Today, I'm going to give you a crash course on England's Wars of the Roses. Is this a topic you're familiar with? Mm, uh, not too much. I, I know a little bit about the War of the Roses and English uh, dynasties. It's not really something that was covered in school very much. (laughs) Right. Certainly not in America. I'm sure if you went to school in England, you have a much better idea about it. (laughs) Probably so. I think the easiest explainer I could give to most people these days would be to point out that much of the lore in Game of Thrones is actually based on the Wars of the Roses. Oh, yeah. Uh, For the books and subsequently the show, the Yorks became the Starks and the Lancasters became the Lannisters. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. It makes it much easier to kind of, and as I go through and tell you about it, you'll you'll be able to pick out things here and there like, oh, that reminds me of this and that, and this person must be whoever, you know. Yeah, you see that a lot in uh, in fantasy. Um, oh, yeah. Allusions to, the, to real life. but Either real life or Lord of the Rings. Pretty much everything <laughs> is based on. Right. Uh, my primary source of information today was an audible lecture called Wars of the Roses, A Captivating Guide to the English Civil Wars. Mm. Let's jump right in. There is no agreed upon start date, though things kicked off in 1455 and did not officially end for the next 32 years. Okay. The main issue, of course, was who should be king. Right. If you go far enough back, there was a single royal family with a well-established line of succession, the Plantagenets. Issues started popping up when King Edward III gave each of his five sons a dukedom, which essentially gave them control over various regions of England. Now, this is equal control over five different areas. Were the areas equal themselves? Ish. Mm -hmm. Kind of, yeah. Um, Edward III was the first king ever to do something like this, and about a hundred years later, it became apparent why no other king had previously considered this a good idea. (laughs) To sum up that century's worth of issues, I'll just say that the Plantagenets split up into two families I mentioned earlier, the Yorks and the Lancasters. There were much more nuanced politics that went into that division, but frankly, it isn't that interesting and ultimately sort of besides the point. Five dudes being given equal power over different parts of the same country and the ensuing cronyism led to a big ass mess down the road. And let's just kind of leave it at that. Sure. For 50-ish years leading up to the war in question, the Lancasters held the throne and the Yorks became increasingly pissed off about this since they felt their claim to the throne was just as strong. This all came to a head with the death of King Henry V in 1422 and the succession of his only son, Henry VI, who was nine months old at the time of his ascension. Nine months old? Nine months old. I've heard of some young kings. That's a bit much, though, yeah. That's very young. It's very young. Uh, Soon after, baby Henry also became the king of France after the death of his grandfather, Charles VI of France. But that only lasted about seven years before Charles's son was like, you have got to be shitting me, (laughs) and took the throne with the help of Joan of Arc. Okay. Uh, What happens when the successor to the throne isn't of age is that an adult who is in the line of succession is appointed to make decisions on the baby king's behalf, which is exactly what you may recall happening in Game of Thrones. Right. Tommen and I believe also Joffrey were not of age to rule, so they had the council and, of course, the hand of the king. Yeah, Um, and and did this have an age range? like 16 16. is is considered to be of age in England at that time. 
So 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 um, Henry was a baby. So this would have been sixteen years of needing yes counseling, and and of course being a, a tiny baby. Mm-hmm. I'm sh- I'm assuming the council pretty much just took control. Oh yeah. Big time. So the main dudes handling Henry VI's business were his Lancaster uncles, Humphrey, Henry Beaufort, John of Bedford, and William, a.k.a. Jack and Apes. But in a solid fifth place was none other than Richard of York. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, now we're off to the races. No, we aren't. Over the next few years... Everyone was too busy battling over who was actually the king of France to worry about who is the king of England. Okay. In addition to that, Henry VI was was often sick and was thought to be dealing with catatonic schizophrenia, which meant that Richard of York and the other council members were still often the ones calling the shots on his behalf. During this time, Richard was actually made Lord Protector of the Realm. Essentially, this meant that Richard was in charge of England, while Henry's health precluded him from ruling. But the second Henry VI was well enough to resume an active role in the ruling of England, Richard of York gathered an army and prepared to tell the Lancasters to go piss up a rope. Oh, man. Yeah, this, this, this is very, uh, well, it's, it sounds very classical fantasy, but, but oh, fantasy yeah. is based on reality. Exactly. Which, which makes um, someone like me who isn't too versed in English history um, and European history, I guess, uh, since this involves France too, um, makes it seem like it's straight out of straight out of a fantasy novel. Right. And you actually know more about European history than you think you do. If you have watched much fantasy or read much fantasy and probably even a lot of fantasy games, I imagine are structured this way. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So now we are in 1455. This is it. Richard of York made his first official move by marching an estimated 7,000 troops to London to face off with about 2,000 of the king's men. Henry was wounded and taken hostage during this initial battle. The Yorkists had no intention of killing him, though, because in the meantime, he had fathered a son. This would have meant starting the whole process over with a brand new Regency Council, which the Yorkists feared would be puppeted by the Cersei Lannister of the peace, Henry's wife, Margaret of Anjou. Keeping Henry alive was of utmost importance for that reason. Therefore, he was treated very well and had nothing to complain about, even though he was being held hostage. Hmm. Several of Henry's closest allies were killed during this first battle, so it took pretty much no effort at all for Richard to convince Parliament that Henry was once again unfit to rule, so they went ahead and reinstated him as Lord Protector, which is de facto king. This lasted until the following year when Henry resumed the throne and fired him. Finally. Wow. Okay, mm-hmm. so so let, let, let's, get, let's, get a, um, let's get an overhead view real quick. Okay, sure. So in France we have... In France, we have Charles's uh, King Charles the Sixth's grandson has, or son rather, has stolen back the throne from Henry the Sixth because Henry the Sixth is the king of England, not of France. Right. And then in England, we have Henry as king. Yes. But Richard is um, uh, fighting for that. That position. Right. So Henry Lancaster is on the throne and Richard of York says, no, no, that throne should be mine. I have just as much claim as you. They got some skirmishes and then Henry uh, takes it back. 
Yes. And at this point, Richard has been, has he been banished? He hasn't. Yes. He's been kicked out of court, Mm -hmm. which I finally was able to convince you to watch the Tudors. So you have kind of an idea of being banished from court. It sounds like, oh, big deal. I have to come home and I can't visit the king anymore. Boo hoo. But it was a huge deal because the king is the closest you can get to God on earth at that time without going to the Pope in Rome. Yeah, it it, it it sounds like it's also being kicked out of any not having access to any sort of power at all, really. Right, you're, you're banished from society. Now, Richard of York would still have been in charge of Yorkshire, like the, the, the area that was given to his family by, you know, King Edward III. Mm-hmm. He still, you know, has that dukedom that he would be in charge of, even if he is banished from court. But you're kicked out of basically polite society. Right. Well, that's what you get for, uh, for taking on the king. <laughs> yeah, fuck around and find out for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Prime example. So tensions are quite high. Quite high. But in 1458, so about three years later, the Yorks and the Lancasters got together and declared the bygones were going to be bygones. Everybody was going to be friends and life was going to be chill. Oh, that's good. Uh, mm. This was entirely a formality. And I'm about half convinced everyone had their fingers crossed under the table. <laughs> Well, it wouldn't be a good story if that wasn't the case. Exactly. Margaret of Anjou, especially, so Henry's wife, was unimpressed with the situation and had come to the conclusion that her husband was never going to be able to hold on to power for any real length of time. As you picked up from watching the Tudors with me, it was a huge deal for the mothers of this time period to assure that their children would be next in line for the throne. And it was no different for Margaret. Right. The next significant battle occurred in September of the following year, and the Yorks got spanked pretty hard by an army that had been roused primarily by Margaret. Afterward, Richard fled to Ireland while sending his heir, Edward of March, to Calais, which is just across the channel in France. Less than a month later, they faced off yet again, and this was an even bigger disaster for the Yorks. See, Henry himself led the army this time, which was a problem, considering Richard had been telling his guys that he wasn't against the king, just the king's advisors. There was kind of no way to deny that anymore when the dude himself actually rolls up and Richard fights him anyway. Wow. Yes. The king offered pardons to anybody in the opposing army who switched sides, so literally 600 of them did immediately. Richard and his top guys took off, leaving the rest of his soldiers behind with no leadership. Because of that, the guys the Yorkists left behind had no choice but to bend the knee to Henry or get slaughtered. Mm, Oh, yeah. Bad. Bad situation. Parliament finally got their shit together at this point and declared Richard of York to be a traitor. But in spite of this, and in spite of his performance at that battle, he still had plenty of backers. Those backers marched on London in July of 1460, so two years later, and whooped ass, even managing to kidnap Henry again and take the Tower of London, where they subsequently imprisoned the king. Richard rode into town flying the royal standards, expecting an actual king's welcome, but it turned out most people were not fans of his and refused to acknowledge him as king, not least of all because both Henry and his son were very much alive. Parliament tried to placate him by declaring him Lord Protector for a third time, which is a pretty bold way to handle open treason, but he was predictably not satisfied with this arrangement, even though it made him the most powerful person in the country and the king was locked away in the tower. 
Even though Henry did not consider himself to be even minorly inconvenienced by his circumstances, Margaret wasn't going to stand for this. She went to her allies in Scotland and exchanged a border city for the support of Scottish troops. The first thing she did with her newly bolstered army was take over Yorkshire, as in Richard of York. Mm -hmm. He couldn't just let that go, so he rode north from London for yet another battle known as the Battle of Wakefield, which took place in December of that year. They were polite enough to bide their time until after the holidays. Then Margaret's guys kicked the collective ass of Richard's guys. It certainly helped matters that her army outnumbered his two to one and that the York army had begun running low on supplies. To top it all off, an entire faction of York's army composed of hundreds of soldiers switched sides mid-battle in a planned act of betrayal. Man, this is just crazy. Oh, it's intense. And it's also pretty surprising. The... um. When did this take place? So this particular battle was in, I believe it was in December of 1460. So this has been going on for five years at this point. Five years. But the but the tide, the tides of war are changing quite dramatically. Like at first, Richard is um, is quite the underdog. Oh, yeah. And then he takes control. Yes. He turns the he turns he turns it on the on its head. He takes London itself, kidnaps the king, locks him in the tower, he gets to be Lord Protector again, so he's on top. But now things are starting to turn again. Yes, because of Margaret. Henry is perfectly content. Like he was not as as before, he's not being mistreated at all. Uh Richard, just to kind of remind you, is his cousin. Mm-hmm. So he trusts him and Again, like Henry's not always in the best health. Richard's been his kind of main advisor for most of his life. So he trusts him. He's Henry's a very gentle guy. That's why he's, you know, it's good that he's married to somebody like Margaret, who is certainly not that at all. Right. And and how old is Henry at this point? He's about 39 years old. So he's, I mean, he, he's not a child anymore. He is a full grown adult. And remember that he has a son of his own at this point. Mm-hmm. 200 Lancastrians and as many as 2,500 Yorkists were killed in this battle, which lasted only about an hour. One hour? One hour. So when I say Margaret spanked them hard, she spanked them hard. She lost 200 guys in an hour, but they lost up to 2,500 in an hour. That's incredible. Two of the casualties were Richard of York, <gasps> Duke of York and Lord Protector of the Realm, and his son Edmund. In another move that will be familiar to Game of Thrones fans, their heads were removed and displayed on spikes outside the castle. They even went so far as to put a paper crown on Richard's head. My God. Oh, yeah. They were not pleased with him. Margaret especially was like, "Mm, nope. Done. So he's done. You'd think that would put an end to all of this, but it absolutely did nothing of the sort. (laughs) Richard's heir, the previously mentioned Edward of March, picked right up where Papa left off. By early February 1461, the Yorkists and the Lancastrians crossed paths, giving Edward an early victory. But meanwhile, another branch of the York army was facing off against Margaret's army, which resulted in a Lancastrian victory and the freeing of King Henry. Hmm. The Yorkists' armies combined and marched into London, where Edward declared himself king on March 4th, 1461. He got a much better reception than his father ever did, if for no other reason than the locals were sick of Margaret running things, because by this point, she was kind of the queen, you know, in power, not just in, you know, in title. Right. 
Even Parliament declined to step in this time. Margaret was not having it, though, and reclaimed Yorkshire. In late March that year, as many as 200,000 Yorkists and Lancastrians lined up just outside of Towton and fought the largest, bloodiest battle that has ever happened on English soil. The Lancaster side was stacked. Not only did they have more support from the ruling class, they also had more cavalry and more bowsmen, swordsmen, and spear throwers. Their army was also in a better position physically, having marshes on one side and a steep riverbank on the other. Henry and Margaret decided to just kick it in York and leave everything up to their military leaders. This is no big deal and we deserve a day off. By contrast, Edward led the Yorkist troops himself. They were getting their asses handed to them, as you'd expect with all the stuff I just mentioned. That is, until the Duke of Norfolk rolled up with his guys midway through the fight and attacked the Lancastrian army from their one unguarded side, the back. Mm. Ultimate victory was awarded to Edward and his men showed no mercy to the Lancastrians who didn't turn tail and run. Many of those who did turn and run didn't fare much better. Thousands of them fleeing over a bridge at the same time caused the bridge to collapse and a large number of them drowned in their retreat. Those who survived the collapse did so by climbing over the bodies of their less fortunate fellows. Wow. When all was said and done, upwards of 28,000 people were killed in the Battle of Towton. Henry and Margaret fled to Scotland and Edward was officially crowned Edward IV of England on June 28, 1461. Man. Oh, yeah. That's a, that, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a lot. Now, before we move on entirely from the Battle of Towton, I want to talk about the ghosts it left behind. And yes, I am being literal when I say that. Ghosts. You, ghosts. You know I love a good ghost. To this day, visitors to Towton have paranormal experiences. There have even been ghosts caught on camera. I'm going to include one such picture on our Instagram, so go check that out. But Clay, I'm going to show it to you right now. Okay. Uh, so in this picture, Neil Cook is on the right. He's a psychic medium and the owner of the picture. But I want you to look uh, and tell me what you see kind of in the background of this picture. Describe that for me. Okay. I'm, I'm taking the picture now. So in the upper right. Yes. You see what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. It's, um, well, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit of a grainy picture. Of course. Um, and the background is especially grainy black and white but it looks like yeah it looks like a couple of figures um so the way it's described it's supposed to be a man on a horse oh so if i zoom in a little bit more oh yeah you see that yeah the 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 couple of pick the couple of uh figures one looks like it was completely black and the other Mm -hmm. one looked like it had a shirt on with a black head yeah but yeah I, i i i can see that Another distinctive thing about this battle that kind of goes into all of this is that even though it took place at the end of March, there was an active blizzard throughout. Mm. Many people claim that it has snowed on the anniversary of the battle every year since. And remember, that's 1461. And if you look out across the battlefield through that snow, you'll see the two armies charging at each other. There's also a pub nearby that claims to have a poltergeist who's more mischievous than malevolent and who they've named Nancy. (laughs) Also, people who live near the river where the bridge collapsed say that they sometimes hear the moaning and screaming of those soldiers. Man, well, I guess if something like this were to be real, paranormal, 
Um, uh, which a, it is, by the way. <laughs> a place where 28,000 people died. Yeah. Of course. I mean, it, it would... If you're somebody like me who's like very into all the paranormal stuff, like this is major residual energy, like 28,000 people. And it's kind of like the stories you hear of Gettysburg mm-hmm. and, and how people still see that battle going on and, you know, feel kind of crazy things when they go and visit there. It's a very similar situation. It's tragic. Very, very tragic. If you know ghosts or not it's it's a a terrible tragic thing again the bloodiest battle ever fought on english soil Mm. now things were actually relatively chill for the next few years with two exceptions both of which took place three years later in 1464 the first is that henry the sixth was captured and thrown in the tower of london again again this time remaining imprisoned for five years The second was King Edward's surprise marriage to Elizabeth of Woodville, a Lancastrian widow who was not considered to be of noble birth. Not only did her Lancaster association give some people the ick, but there also was the fact that Edward's advisors had been vigorously negotiating with Louis XI of France for Edward to marry either Louis's sister-in-law or one of his daughters, thus strengthening Edward's alliance with France. Warwick, the man who considered himself the real power behind the throne at this point, was so furious over this that he accused Elizabeth and her mother of witchcraft. But nothing came of it, even though it was the 1460s. Wow, that's that 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 is very uh, similar to stuff we've seen on the Tudors, and I'm and I'm sure. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because Anne Boleyn was accused of witchcrafts. People really believed she had bewitched Henry. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but when I say that nothing came of it, I mean, literally nothing. Edward wasn't even mad at Warwick about it, which I personally take exception to. Right. What the hell? Like, I, if you didn't get mad about somebody accusing me of something that would have me set on fire, I'd be pretty pissed off. Well, it was a different time. (laughs) Yes. Yes, (laughs) it was. Um, but other than that, it was a reasonably quiet time for a few years until Warwick decided he just could not move on. Mm. He left court and returned to his own place voluntarily, where he had a couple of years to stew over the various real and imagined slights he'd received from Edward. It aided him enough that in 1469, he said, fuck this and fuck you and decided to support the Lancastrian claim to the throne. His first move was to stir up a rebellion in the north of England, where Henry was still considered to be the true king by most people. The Yorkist army was defeated in late July, and Edward was taken prisoner, while several of his closest allies were executed. Edward's imprisonment only lasted a few months, though, and he was allowed to return to London at the end of it because the majority of the country supported his claim to the throne, so keeping him locked up wasn't doing them any favors. For the most part, people had tolerated Henry being treated this way because they didn't really like him that much, and he'd earned himself the familiar nickname, the Mad King. Mm, yes. But unlike in Game of Thrones, you know, the you know Targaryen fella was considered the Mad King because he was burning people on fire and just doing like committing atrocities, whereas Henry was considered the Mad King because he was dealing with mental health issues. Right, different kind of madness. Completely different situation, yeah. Um, On the other hand, Edward was seen as daring, noble, decisive, and of course, very handsome. Of course. Of course. We can't keep a cute boy locked up. 
Warwick hightailed it over to France and started negotiating an alliance with Margaret of Anjou, his former enemy, with the help of Louis XI. Alliance in hand, Warwick returned to England in 1470 and started bashing Yorkist skulls. And bash he did. They successfully ousted Edward from the throne and forced him to flee England entirely. Henry VI was re-coronated and paraded around for people to wave at. I imagine at this point, average people were getting really bored with all of this. Like, these are not real problems. These are rich people problems. Please leave the rest of us alone. Right. It, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's pretty surprising to me to hear the constant um, capture, imprisonment, yes. release, mm-hmm. rein, reinstated, only to be dethroned, but over just and over. recaptured, mm-hmm. put into prison, or maybe not prison necessarily, but... but Locked uh, away. Locked away. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, it's been going on for 15 years. I would have expected a little bit more um, callousness, considering mm-hmm. the fact that they are... I, I, I mean, maybe maybe this, maybe this is why you said rich people problems, because maybe they were not really trying to kill one another. They just wanted one another's power. Exactly. And... and well, and they specifically were not trying to kill each other because then you have to deal with each other's heirs. Like killing the king, whoever the king might be at the time, or the person who is gunning to be king, doesn't really do that much for you if they have already produced an heir. Right. Yeah, that's in, that, that, that is, it's interesting. It is. It's, it's so different from what we have now, obviously. Right. So, confusingly, Henry VI's heir is also named Edward. So, I'm going to refer to him as Edward Lancaster. There were only about 10 names back then, and there's really nothing I can do about that. (laughs) So, by this point, Edward Lancaster was 16, which means that as soon as Henry VI kicks it, his son will be old enough to rule without need of a regency council. So, truly, killing Henry VI does nothing. His son is ready to take over without anybody else's help yeah does not help you at all yeah um to further ingratiate himself to his new allies warwick offered his 13 year old daughter anne in marriage to edward lancaster so now you know henry the sixth is on the throne edward lancaster is old enough to take over as soon as need be and now he is married and can start working on producing an heir of his own so we are really trying to lock it in and warwick is like oh, okay but i'm on your side now see like oh the baby will be like my grandkid so i'm, I'm a good guy right like i'm fine mm-hmm. switching back over to edward of york meanwhile he used his time in exile to you guessed it raise an army and gain the favor of Charles, the heir to Louis XI of France. While his main goal was still the throne, he now had a very close second when it came to his biggest ambitions. And that was absolutely smiting the shit out of Warwick. London basically rolled out the red carpet for Edward when he rode back into the city to claim his birthright. And obviously the first thing checked off his to-do list was to put Henry back in the tower. Right back. Right back. Um, the silver lining here for Henry is I honestly don't think he had time to unpack from his last day. Like his, <laughs> his posters were probably still up on the wall from last time. It's, you know, it's totally fine. Why bother? And it should be noted again that Henry was such a chill, easygoing guy who would become so used to this that he welcomed Edward back. Like he literally embraced him and was perfectly content to be back under his care. Do you th- I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. Yes. But maybe it's because... 
he knew that if 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 he acted out that maybe his treatment would not be as kind as I, it had been i don't think so i honestly believe it was because edward has legitimately been taking care of henry his entire life and henry is not at peak performance mentally or physically he needs a lot of help and a lot of care and he mm-hmm. gets that i'm not sure that margaret I mean, when you think about the fact that Cersei Lannister was based on Margaret of Anjou, she was probably not as caring. She was probably a little rough with him. She, you know, it's known that she wanted him to man up and run the country and secure your throne and worry about your children's legacy and all this and that. Whereas, you know, Edward's like, no, we'll take care of you. You know, we'll bring you your favorite soup and you'll have a nice view out the window that you like. And <laughs> we'll put you back in your old room. And I have always taken care of you. Just let me take care of you. I suppose so. It it, it just, it, it's, it's so, it's so different. It It is very different. And if you, if you wonder why Henry and even Margaret you know, didn't just tell everybody to cut it out and let Edward be king. It's important to keep in mind that at this time and to this very day with Queen Elizabeth II, the kings and queens of England believe themselves to be chosen by God to lead their nation, which, of course, you saw a lot of in the Tudors, like the big uh, drama with Henry VIII being, you know, head of the church. Like, I was put here by God, just like the Pope was. Right. To just step aside and hand over your crown would have been tantamount to saying that God was wrong. And that was a thousand percent not going to fly back then. It wasn't even a thought that would have entered their heads. Mm -hmm. By April of 1471, it was time for the showdown between Edward and Warwick. Two separate battles were fought mere days apart, one in Barnett and one in Tewkesbury. During the first at Barnett, Warwick was killed and his army was utterly destroyed. Those who remained rallied around Margaret, but when the Yorkist army caught up to them, they kicked their ass in Tewkesbury too. During this battle, Edward Lancaster, Henry VI's only son and heir, was killed. Less than three weeks later, Henry VI himself died and many think it was because of the overwhelming grief of losing his son. Mm. Now, there's no Henry VI. There's no Edward Lancaster. The only one left standing is Edward IV. He remained king unopposed until his death 12 years later in 1483. The Yorks did it. They won. Is that the outcome you expected? I mean, not exactly, but history often doesn't. Well, here's the thing. We're not done. Oh, come on. Now. Oh, we're not done. When what Edward started <laughs> when Edward started getting sick, you know, ahead of his death, he knew his days were numbered. But his son, who was frustratingly also named Edward, was only 12 years old. Edward Sr. knew how that whole deal worked, so he named his brother Richard as Lord Protector from the time of his death until Edward Jr. came of age. In the meantime, Edward Sr.'s in-laws, the Woodvilles, had become super power-hungry. They wanted to be the puppet masters of the young king, and Richard was very aware of that. All they had to do was sneeze at the wrong time, and Richard was having them arrested. This man had seen enough of his brother's struggle for power, and he wanted no part of it for himself. In June of 1483, he went so far as to have three of the Woodvilles beheaded. I'm not going to go too much into this, but he also had Edward Jr. and his younger brother sent to live in the Tower of London. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
more on that perhaps later. Indeed. While they were there, Richard was quote unquote informed that Edward Sr.'s marriage to Elizabeth of Woodville had never been valid in the first place, meaning that Edward Jr. was not, in fact, the rightful heir to the throne. And in fact, that meant that Richard was next in line. Wow. What an incredible discovery. How how fortuitous and (laughs) miraculous even. On what should have been Edward Jr.'s coronation day, Richard was crowned King Richard III instead. Mm. The remaining Woodville family, including the Dowager Queen Elizabeth, was pissed, as were most of the new king's subjects. Keep in mind that Edward IV was very popular, and by extension, so were his children. Elizabeth became allies with a woman named Margaret Beaufort, and together they decided that Margaret's son, the triple great-grandson of Edward III, was now the rightful heir to the throne. As a reminder, Edward III is the dingus who kickstarted this whole thing by making all of his sons dukes. Yeah. One can't help but wonder if Elizabeth had any misgivings about this, because this new contender for the throne was a Lancaster, not a York. But I think at this point, she'd be happy with anybody who was not Richard III. So the final opponent enters the arena, 26-year-old Henry Tudor. Ah, Does that name ring a bell? Yeah. To strengthen his claim, he married Edward IV's only living child, Elizabeth of York. So Elizabeth's daughter, Elizabeth, whose father was Edward and had a son named Edward. Like there were 10 names to choose from. Okay. It seems to be that way. I mean, really. They just just like those names. It is so frustrating to research. You have to pay real close attention to the numbers that follow the names or like she's Elizabeth of York, whereas the other one was Elizabeth of Woodville. Like, okay, I Mm. I think I've got it. (laughs) This had the intended effect of getting tons of people to jump ship from Team Richard to Team Henry. Their first attempt at grabbing power was foiled, though, when Henry's fleet of fancy new French ships were delayed by a storm. Not a great start. Following the massive defeat, he went into hiding in France only to reappear with a vengeance in the summer of 1485 with thousands of French, Scottish and Welsh troops joining the Lancastrian army in support of Henry. As he swept across the countryside, he managed to pick up hundreds of Yorkist soldiers who defected to his side. Richard and Henry's armies had it out at the Battle of Bosworth Field on August 22nd, 1485, with a swift, decisive victory in Henry's favor. As for Richard, he became the last English king to die in battle. Henry VII was crowned the following October. Wow. Yeah. Apart from a couple of piddly little uprisings in 1487 and 1491, Henry's rule was uncontested and the Wars of the Roses ended. However, his son, Henry VIII, dealt with his fair share of Yorkist claims to the throne as seen in the first season of the Tudors. If you remember that one guy could not let it go and uh, paid the price for that. Uh, The Tudor claim to the throne, however, only lasted for three generations. Henry VIII famously didn't father any sons who lived into adulthood. Upon his death, his nine-year-old son, Edward VI, took the throne. But Edward died before he came of age. Edward VI was followed very briefly by Lady Jane Grey, also known as the Nine Days Queen, because of some issues surrounding Henry VIII's will and the fact that he kept disinheriting his daughters and having them declared illegitimate bastards. Right. Yes. 
Regardless, his daughter Mary I, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, reclaimed the throne from Jane Grey, followed by her sister, the legendary Elizabeth I. Mm, yes. If there's only one thing you know about Elizabeth I, it's probably that she never married or had any children. There was predictably a brand new set of issues about who the new boss was after her death. In the end, the Wars of the Roses gave England arguably their two most internationally famous monarchs in Henry VIII and his daughter Elizabeth I. So you still couldn't say it was all for nothing. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So that's that's your, your crash course on the 32-year English Civil War. That's really good. That's really good. I just have one last question. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's there's so much. Oh my gosh. To to, to pull out of that. Oh yeah. Um, but I think that's a fantastic um, overview. Oh, thank of everything. you. Uh, um, but I do have a question. Why was it called the War of the Roses? I am so glad you asked. So the Lancasters and the Yorks. You're familiar. I mean, even in Game of Thrones, you see it. The heraldic symbols that are on the flags you know Mm -hmm. the you have you know the stags and you know the the tyrells were the roses and you know all that kind of stuff so um the yorks and the lancasters both of them because they came from one plantagenet family their banners had roses on them Uh. one was red and one was white and then once the Wars of the Roses were over, the Tudor Herald became a red and white rose to symbol both families being united again under one king. Gotcha. Okay. That's a, that's a, that's a perfectly simple answer. <laughs> yeah. That's maybe the only simple answer in the entire <laughs> damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's great. All right. Well, thanks for listening and giving us a little bit of your time today. Hopefully you enjoyed that little crash course. And if you did, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. If you want to see that Towton ghost photo, it will be on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. We are at Fantastic HPod on both. You can also drop us a line at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>